You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net has been your one-stop shop for all things geek for years. But there's a side to them many of you have never heard. The subscription side. Subscribe and listen to great podcasts like The Breakfast Pub, The Original Gentleman, and the Watch a Movie With Us series. Head on over to oneofus.net and don't forget your towel. Well, I mean, I assume you're listening to it. It might well, be your favorite show. It might be. It's a show that you listen to. It's a show that you listen you to. Could you could have wasted love. your time on any number of podcasts, but you chose to waste your time on ours. Now, and for on. that, we are grateful. Now, wait a minute. Phrasing. Are we still doing I'm phrasing? I'm being gracious. <laughs> I'm thanking them. In your way. In your way, you're thanking them. In Thank my you, Marco. Way. And this is, yes, Marco Noella joining me here to, to talk about the latest Blu-rays and DVDs coming out this week. Uh, please... If you can, if you're going to buy anything on Amazon, say you're even going to buy one of the movies we're talking about, then what, what I want you to do is the actual oneofus.net page for this episode of Digital Noise has a bunch of images on it of the movies we're talking about it, with including time codes where if you were just wanted to listen to specific reviews, you could mm-hmm. jump around. But if you click on those images, they'll bring you to the Amazon.com page, and if you buy that item through that link... We get a nice little kickback for the site, which honestly is one of a, just a few things that are, keep this site going and, and running. And you, But even better, let's say you're like, oh, shit, I need a new laundry machine. You don't have to, like, go and buy it from some other place. It's not going to help anyone. You can start from – as long as you start from one of our links, anything you buy after that on Amazon, starting from that link, we get that kickback. So that's Absolutely. pretty sweet. Uh, the other big thing you can do, of course, is become a subscriber. Lots of uh, bonuses. I just added a brand new thing to that as well, which is my daily Captain's Log videos. <laughs> yes, log. yes. Get your mind out of the gutter. <laughs> Some, someday I may do it when I'm drunk enough to show my willy, but probably not. Uh, but I'll yeah. pay you not to see that. <laughs> uh, wow, there's a new uh, pricing yeah, that's strategy. That's a new incentive. <laughs> but brown coats and above get to see that every day, every weekday, mind you, because come on, I got to have my weekends, people. What the fuck? Uh, where I talk about much and sundry, and eventually I'll be having conversations and interviews with people on there and stuff. Just fun stuff that doesn't quite fit into one of the other niches on the site. Right. Anyway, with all that being said, let's move into the reviews. Yes, absolutely. And we're going to start off with one that, that you actually didn't get to see. I did not, no. But, but I only got to see part of it. Um, and part of the reason was I just kind of went, I'm glad that things like this exist, but I lost my patience for it rather quickly into it. It looks like the, the cover of The Martian. Yeah, it's uh, Mars. And it's Mars. Not from, The Martian, no. but it sure looks like I could be Matt Damon on the cover. Uh, right, exactly. And I think that's probably very uh, intentional. more than just a little bit intentional. <laughs> this is produced by uh, Nat Geo, as they're calling themselves now, National Geographic. Uh-huh. And the idea of this miniseries was that it splits between two time periods. It splits between now 
where it's basically an advertisement for the company SpaceX <laughs> run by Elon Musk. And they're like, we are going to land a man on Mars mission. You know, they're talking about like, we're going to do it. In fact, they're the only ones who've been making progress towards so it. So far. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they've been making very active progress towards this being a thing that happens. Uh, by the way, did you see the thing now, like on the, the new lander? Cause they landed one that didn't land it crashed. So they're sending another no, one up. And I've part about of the it. thing is it has experimental thing on it. Nobody's ever done this before that in theory can process oxygen out of the atmosphere of Mars can create oxygen. Now, if that happens, that's like the first big, like Kim Stanley Robinson, red Mars step. Well, right I mean, there. you know, they'd have to build like a structure to keep it in. That's yeah. the thing. Well, you know, you've got putting it on the planet is yeah. kind of, it's not just going to disperse pretty quick. Yeah, exactly. But Lane no, that's exciting good. news. It is exciting. Well, this, uh, the second time period is in the future. And, uh, in, uh, I want 2037 where the Mars mission has taken off meeting all the astronauts and they go to Mars and following them. And the show flashes back and forth between, you know, the people now who are talking about, like, you know, interviewing real people with, like, okay, here's how this is where we are and what we're doing, and to this fictional future that they're doing the best to, to plausibly say how this might go down, okay. even though in the whole, like, this whole thing feels more like Apollo 13, like, right. everything is going fucking wrong right from the get-go. So, uh, every episode is we have a, a problem of the week that yeah. they have to solve. Yeah, pretty much. Or, or sometimes two or three. I, I just, my hope is... That like, I mean, this is like watching this. I'm feeling not very excited about us being actually able to pull this off because you're like, Jesus Christ, there's a lot of fucking issues. I'm kind of thinking that aren't we past most of this already? Shouldn't most of this should have been worked uh, out? You know, Mars is still pretty fresh territory. True. I mean, you know, there's a lot of struggle and effort required just to set up a miserable existence on some other planet. I mean, very, very true. Look at what we got on this one. And you want to go and be miserable on some other planet? No, in all honesty, this sounds very interesting. I did. I wish I'd gotten to see a few episodes with you. But uh, so tell me, walk me through this. It's how many episodes is this? Uh, let's see. Is this, this like a, a, yeah, a whole it's only, season? It's only six episodes, but they've they've approved it for a second season. Oh, okay. So even though right from the, the first episode, you're like, they ain't gonna make it. They're gonna die. <laughs> like you know. And one of the main character, the guy you think is the, the primary character of the show, because mainly he's the most recognizable actor in it. Like unquestionably dies in the first couple episodes, and you're so like, he's the Janet geez. Lee of the ep- of the series. <laughs> I suppose. Like, ah, oh, we hooked you. We if, thought we gave you a B grade star, and now he's dead. If Mars is Norman Bates, then yes. that's right. <laughs> I don't know. I was very mixed. And then, you know, the the second team is like the Vera Miles who has to come in and find out what's happening. <laughs> I was very mixed about this. I mean, I appreciate what they're trying to do. Um, but uh, like I said, the amount of disasters are going on that are clearly there for more of the purposes of drama make this seem like this is a terrible idea and maybe we should just not do it. <laughs> you know, more than being excited for it. There seems to be stuff with special features, though. I always like the behind-the-scenes stuff. I find that a lot of DVDs these days skimp on that. And based on what I'm looking at, you know, this is a pretty impressive list of, you know, behind-the-scenes stuff. So that's oh, cool. Yeah, a lot of stuff that's really focusing on the science of this and how plausible it is and getting into, you know, very documentary about, like, how would we do this? And then even in the making of this, how did they make, why did they make the decisions that they did? Which yeah. is indeed interesting. I just wish the show itself was better. And it's mm. big problem is just a lack of momentum every time things start to get interesting in the the, the the fictional part they switch back for 10 minutes to the 
talking head interviews and you're like, fucking seriously? Even if it has nothing to do (laughs) with what we're seeing. You know, it's like at least on Lost when they had flashbacks, it was always related in some way to what was going on in the... Yeah, I know. It's just kind of like, okay, well, that's a thing. Anyway, let's move on from from Mars to something you did see, which is a little comedy, indie comedy called Punching Henry. Now, I didn't realize this is actually a sequel. Is it not? Is that really? Yeah. This, okay, I did not know that. The same creator of this film and star of this film, Henry Phillips, also created a film before this called Punching the Clown uh-huh. uh, in 2009, ways back, which is essentially the same plot, just a little slightly different things happen. The idea is Henry Phillips, um, uh, who's playing basically a slightly fictionalized version of himself, so to say not really that fictionalized is a stand-up comedian slash musician. He plays funny songs with a, with a, uh, a guitar and he is, you know, barely getting by, you know, yeah. constantly on the road, uh, interacting a lot with other comedians. There's a lot of comedians in there who aren't playing themselves. They're playing other characters. Yeah, no, that, that's one of the selling points of this film. I mean, it's got a really strong cast. I mean, the, the two big plots here, a J.K. Simmons plays a very nice and optimistic producer who's like, yeah. I think we have a shot at that a television was, show. That was you. actually refreshing. I was ready for him to be the sleaze bag of the film, and he's not. He's just the guy who's good at dealing with the sleaze bags. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, as this process goes on, it's dealing with you know producers who have no, who just don't understand the concept here at all and want to turn it into something that it's not. And the thing is that what they, what they, uh, what appeals to them about Henry is not his material. He thinks, oh, they like me they think i'm funny they think i'm great actually they like him because he's a loser mm-hmm. that's they perceive him as a loser and they want to make a reality tv show that is basically just you know an extension of this whole cringe comedy that runs throughout the entire thing that sort of gets a little tiresome for me after a while but like i said what really made it work is that the uh, henry phillips is kind of a genial sort of you know sad sack loser trying to make good and he's got his friends who are around him who are all a bit quirky and weird uh, sarah silverman is kind of part of this framing yeah. device she's, the framing she's interviewing device. him yeah you know so they got her in for a day to sit in a radio station i mean the other but, the know, main it's subplot, the cast that saves this the main subplot is a tignatero who, oh, who's yeah. a very old and close friend of his who he's staying with when he goes out to la to like deal with these producers yeah. of the show uh and she's you know, as she is in real life, a lesbian, and she's there with her lover, and they slowly approach him about, like, well, we, neither one of us can, can, like, do the baby thing on our own, so we kind of would like to approach you about being a dad, and that leads to all sorts of uncomfortableness, but oh, I yes. thought was ultimately kind of cliched. Yeah, like, it was there just to give, you know, something to, for Tignataro to do. Really, the crux of this whole thing is just watching Henry Phillips go out, do his act, with his silly, you know, scatological songs about his bad relationships. And what happens is they set up this gig that's supposed to be a showcase for a bunch of producers to come see him, and instead he has some technical difficulties. His whole set is ruined. Somebody records it. It goes viral, and suddenly you have all of these, you know, hotshot young producers talking about metrics and likes and things that... And they realize that they, he realizes uh, that he's really just there to be miserable and no one's really invested in him and actually succeeding because the moment he succeeds, he doesn't have a show. What's the thing is watching this guy who's definitely set up as like somebody who there's a black cloud following around. Yes. Nothing works out for this guy. And part, it's like half his own fault for just making stupid mistakes and the other half is just random shit that happens right. in his life. And you're kind of like... 
I would kind of look at this as as the universe telling you, I know it sucks, but if you want to be famous, this actually is the only way it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And he does have to make that decision somewhere during the point of the film. And, you know, it's a fun little movie. It's not great, but, no. you know, it the, was certainly entertaining. The thing is, like, I wasn't really into either one of the <clears throat> plot elements here, yeah. but I did like a lot of the little side bits going on with other yeah. people. Um, there's a lot of like big names in here. Doug Stanhope plays a cat yeah. dispatcher. Which is one of the best running gags in the yeah, movie. That he's having a, a, a big fight with because he basically called a second cab after the first cab didn't show up after like an hour and a half. Something anyone who's ever used a cab server should be familiar with. And it ends up being this running back and forth hate fest between the two of them that's actually pretty funny as a as a ex uh, rideshare driver i could appreciate the sentiment of man fuck cabs yeah i'll just call an uber <laughs> uh lots of good people in this thing though like i said jk simmons is great yeah, jim Jeffries, a little bit uh, um, uh mike judge appears in this clifton collins jr yeah. um there's a lot of funny moments but overall i was kind of like okay this is I one mean, of those like it's it's a Interesting, but not essential piece. Henry Phillips comedy. has a lot of famous friends. And really, yeah. without that, I don't think this movie would exist. But hey, you know, it's great that they clearly like the dude enough that they showed up to help him out on this. Well, one of my favorite bits in here was with Austin comedian Brandon Walsh, who uh, plays a guy who's like a big fan. Who's like, oh my God, I'm so excited. Yes. We drove all the way from Luma Tear to Zier show. So don't, thrilled. Don't, and, don't ruin the gag, though. Yeah, And then something happens where it's just like makes... Uh, Henry just feel awful. (laughs) That's actually very, very funny. And there's an extra that's like alternate takes of that gag. There's two deleted scenes. um, And and there's a thing with the guy who's doing bad introductions to the comedians with alternate uh, introductions that he did for performers. But I don't know. It's if you're really into the, the, you know, the stuff around the culture around stand-up comedy, this might be a nice little add-on piece to yeah. that TV show that's on right now. That's very mm-hmm. popular. In fact, there's two, there's one called nobodies that I just read about the okay. other day that I have not seen. And then there's the one that's on, uh, I believe HBO or Showtime, which is probably the real life version of the fictionalized concept that they're pitching to this guy. True. So yeah, not a bad film. It's okay. Now we're going to go deep cut. For Indy here, and this is one of those things, it was funny, when I, I, I probably wouldn't have asked for this, but my wife was standing by the computer when I was looking at the email, she's like, oh, I had to watch this in school, it's wonderful, you should get it, and I was like, fuck, now nah, I gotta get it, uh, but I, I'm really glad I did watch it, I think Daughters of the Dust is a very dated indie film, 1991, there's a lot of things about it that scream 1990, early yeah. 90s indie movie, but it was Kind of a, a big deal when it came out. For one thing, all African, moment. all African American cast, right. uh, and it's been even it was a pick for preservation in the United States National Film Registry as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically. Yeah. And Julie D- Dash is the first Black female film director to ever receive that honor. Yeah, to have to well, also to ever have a uh, a theatrical American theatrical release. I mean, this was kind of a, it's really long ago and it's kind of faded in my memory, but this certainly was a big uh, indie hit, relatively speaking, for the time. I mean, Uh, you know, just what it was, the fact that it was like all African-American cast, it was getting a a theatrical release across the country from a black female director. That was a big deal. And it's a pretty pretty beautiful looking film. Oh, it's gorgeous. Um, Set in 1902 with uh, these Islanders who, who live off the South Carolina, Georgia coast on this very kind of 
like weird cultural thing where there's yeah. an island there that's all like it's the Gullah Island. It's, a, it's from, an actual place. Yeah, descended from ex-slaves, and they've created their own sort of mishmash of cultures mm-hmm. that's there from like Southern culture, like slave culture, to all these things. They were they, remote enough that they could keep a lot of those old ancestral elements, but you also had elements of Christianity. You had Islamic yeah. culture. You had you know ex-slaves who had come and joined. You had people who were all born free and had never been in slavery, but what it basically is, it also speaks to the African diaspora. You have a, a large extended family who have come together to basically have one big get-together before the bulk of the family migrates north mm-hmm. to seek their fame and fortune. You know, there's this optimistic attitude that, you know, now the world is, you know, there's, there's new opportunities for African Americans. They're going to go to the big city. They're going to make their way in life. Now, of course, you know, looking backwards – you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we can go, well, some of these things are not going to be great. You know, this sort of idyllic paradise that they appear to live in, you know, uh, is actually sheltering them from some of these harsher realities. And it's pretty normal for anybody to kind of, you know, it's the grass is always greener kind of attitude. Sure. And what you see is these sort of generational conflicts. There's a bunch of little subplots. It's a very nonlinear story. And really, the story itself is very elemental. Like I said, it mainly revolves around a big dinner, a bunch of people getting together. You have family members, some of whom have scandalous pasts, getting together and gossip among them. And you have the matriarch of the family who still preserves her old ways. You also have some of the younger generation who find these ways to be very backwards. And, you know, they want to get away from them. Some are very sad about leaving. Some are can't wait to get this place yeah. behind them. And it doesn't really choose any one side. It's uh, there at one point in the film you see a character uh, playing with a kaleidoscope, and another character uh, who is a photographer who's been brought in to document the family starts giving like a breakdown of how kaleidoscopes work, and you know, defining the Greek word basis of the word. And I realized when I saw that, that's what she's doing. This is a kaleidoscopic view. It's not focusing on a single character. You're trying to capture a bunch of facets of all these members of the family. And you also have this sort of magical realism device running throughout where the, a large portion of the movie is narrated by an unborn child. Right. Whom we do see at times. But again, I, I see what you're saying about the, some of it dated. Uh, if you will listen to some of the special features on this, and it's a pretty packed disc. A lot of interviews, a lot of behind-the-scenes material. Uh, They did some kind of novel stuff at the time using some technology that would allow them to manually ramp the film speed up and down. Yeah. Because they didn't want just a typical slow-mo. They wanted to be able to kind of manipulate space and time using that technology. So that technique does feel a little dated at times. I think the real dated thing is the soundtrack which is an all-synth score that uses a lot of That's tribal rhythms. That's the most rhythms. 90s thing on It is very 90s. It's like it could either be the soundtrack to this or to any given, like, 48 hours rip-off film. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't go quite that far, but yeah, I see what you're saying. But yes, it definitely feels like a 90s synth score. With saxophone. It, it's not <laughs> inappropriate for the material, but it does not hold up uh, as well as the rest. This, like I said, the performances are very good. Even the though almost sound, everyone in here was a non-actor. Lots of great non-actor performances. A lot of naturalistic performances. Uh, wonderful attention to production design and detail. Uh, one thing they mentioned was in the interview material that, that they created all of these dresses and lace. And typically, and this was a very important thing to Julie Dash, was 
so many times uh, films that portrayed African-Americans during this particular time frame kind of leaned on old cliches. They're plantation workers or urban, you know, working stiffs. Here, you know, you see a kind of gentility that you don't normally associate with African-American cinema. Even the idea of, of all of these women in these beautiful white dresses and they... You know, she said, well, you might think that's a stylistic thing, but we looked and, you know, we found documentary footage or, and photographs of the Gullah Islanders, and this is what they wore for yeah. big events. And, you know, the men dressed up in suits, the women had these beautiful white linen dresses, and it is, you know, it has actually had a huge impact in other areas, too. I mean, on music videos, I mean, Beyonce's done a, done a whole video that takes elements from this. Well, yeah, if you watch Lemonade, there, yeah. you'll see a lot of stuff that is very familiar to you. Uh, the uh, cinematographer from this, you know, it went on to work with Spike Lee, but it also became a cinematographer in his own right. You know, it has been done, done a lot of music videos, a lot of which draw on this kind of sunlit, very kind of... Uh, stylized look but it is absolutely gorgeous i understand if people watching it uh may feel that it's a bit slow uh i mean it is it's slow. not action-packed <laughs> but it is trying to say it's to a, me it's like we're going to go take you back in time we're not going to rush it we don't have some big yeah. high-stakes story well, because there's no it, plot it's there slice no, of life it's not a plot it's a series of subplots there is no real yeah. plot. There's no central character either. Yeah. It's all a bunch of very small subplots based on relationships yeah. that, that like most of which don't even really come up to anything, but that's not the goal here. The goal yeah. is to show you a portrait of this very unique culture Absolutely. that was going on that yet still is resonant in the African-American culture yeah. today. And for that, it is of great value. And, you know, it, there's a reason why it's in the National Registry. Like I said, this is one of those movies that might feel like homework to some of you. But if you're looking for a little break from your typical genre action fair, you know, Daughters of the Dust is a highly recommended uh, slice of 90s indie art cinema and well worth watching. And speaking of genre action fair, let's there move we on go. to the DC Animated Universe release this time around, Teen Titans, The Judas Contract. This is... Um, now directed, that's good segue right yeah, this there. This is directed <laughs> by Sam Liu, who's done a bunch of these so far, based on one of the biggest DC runs from the period of time, I believe the 80s, uh, from the Teen Titans was really the thing that made the Teen Titans a big, successful book for a while. Back when at first it was kind of just a look down on as like a ripoff of the New Mutants. Yeah. And then it was like, okay, this is like a truly great run that still holds up today by Marvel Wolfman and George Perez, who, by the way, they got together for the bonus features on here to talk at length with each other, who it looks like they haven't even seen each other in like oh, probably over a decade. Not. But interesting to have that bring the actual creators back and comment yeah. on all this. And stuff. a lot of great voice actors on this. Oh, yeah. Christina Ricci. Taisa Famiga, Miguel Ferrer. His last performance, actually. I did not realize. I was this say, was his last dead? performance, yes. Uh, he, Kerry he, Walgren's, Sean Mayer. Um, it's like, not everybody is my, my ultimate choices for playing these roles, but everybody does just fine. And, of course, this they already did a Teen Titans movie, Justice League versus the Teen Titans, and this is the sequel to that. So that tying into the rest of the Batman animated, DC animated universe films. In this version... Robin is already Nightwing. In the original story, it was kind of about, to some level, Robin, Dick Grayson deciding, I'm done being Robin, I'm mm-hmm. becoming Nightwing. That was kind of the subplot of the whole thing. Yeah. Here he's been Nightwing for a while, and he's already dating um, uh, uh, Starfire, like yeah. by Corey Wal- Walgren. 
And now Damian Wayne, who's now the current Robin, is kind of taking his place in the story. I mean, there's certainly a lot of changes from the original, but still the core is there, which is about the character of Tara, voiced by Christina Ricci, who's the the new young girl they brought in, who's got the power to manipulate Earth, who's really an alpha-level mutant when you think about it. Oh, yeah. No, she she has probably one of the best skill sets in this film. And realizing over time, which, you know, as you as a viewer figure out relatively quickly, that uh, she is not there to have be be a Teen Titan. She's there because she's working for Deathstroke the Terminator and is there to help him who's got a contract with the Brotherhood of Blood to overthrow the Teen Titans. I mean, it's called the Judas Contract, so you can kind of guess somebody is going to betray somebody. I mean, it's one of the most famous comic runs ever. Yeah. It really is. And it's kind of one of those, okay, we're watching this to see how they pull this off. Oh, and let's not forget, a a cameo by Kevin Smith playing himself. That's the main irritating thing. I'm just like, uh, the, the whole way the comics industry continues to embrace Kevin Smith. I mean, I think Kevin Smith's not a terrible guy. He's just a terrible film director. But, like, but you know on. what? He loves it, and he's a booster. Yeah, I guess. I mean, he. I don't. Think he loves need, those guys, they and they respect it. They probably don't, <laughs> but they're not going to turn his help down. I mean, the main thing I was worried about here was: a, are they going to get Terror right? B, are they going to get her relationship with Beast Boy right? Played by Brandon Suhu here. Uh, who the the big thing is like he's always kind of the guy who's you know feels a little left out from everyone else and he now, hey, there's this single girl who's cute and he's not good at making the moves. He kind of overcompensates. There's some there's some borderline harassment issues there. there there's but, some actually some creepy as fuck But I mean, he's like 14. He, so he's 14 like, acting very inappropriately. I mean, it's much creepier the original comic book. Let me wrap myself as a snake around you and maybe I'll let you go if you give me a kiss. And, I'm like, okay. In the original dude, comic book, not cool. Tara's actually having an affair with Deathstroke when she's like 15 and he's and you like know what? 60. And the way they suggest that in this one. They suggest that. And they promised, dance around it. Yeah, he's like, he promises that they can be together once this thing is done. But, but the way the characters are designed, she looks like she's 12 and she shows up with a little slip with a little, yeah. with a strap off the shoulder with made up. Like she's ready to get it on. And he looks like he's literally twice her size going yeah. maybe later. Yeah. I think. Really creepy vibe. She's actually wearing lingerie in the comic, so once again, got off yeah. easy here. Uh, that was the wrong phrasing, you know. Once again, yeah, you know, uh-huh. phrasing. I don't know. I mean, like, I there's, I'm not worried about any of the differences in the comic. Those had to happen. None of that stuff really sure. bothers me. There were things that they had, and to I wasn't familiar with it. And I was not, as someone who was outside of it, who only knew some very basic material. I, I thought, oh god, I'm going to be completely lost. And it does start off sort of in medias res, and you have a lot of stuff happening, and you go, wait a minute, what's going on here? And then they cut many years later. However, <coughs> as someone coming in from you know not being too familiar, I was I didn't find it hard to follow the story. Mm-hmm. After a while, I figured out what everybody was doing, what the relationships were, what the stakes were. Yeah, you know, and it worked. It's it's a well done. Uh, it's borderline PG thirteen. I think it's rated it's PG thirteen. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's a pretty soft. There, there's a. I was kind of surprised. I was like, oh wait, they're dropping some. There's no f bombs in here, but you know, there's a little bit of language here and there, and there is some suggestive material I mean, that already, they dance around. Yeah, you adults should know by now the DC animated universe of DVD releases are not for very young children. If you want that, you no. can make them watch Teen Titans Go, which is a series for very young children, yeah. but is pretty entertaining in and of itself. Absolutely. This is definitely for the slightly older kids and and for adults who look back fondly on this stuff, like myself. I don't know. I think this has the same problem that a lot of the DC animated universes that deal with darker emotional stuff do 
it just doesn't translate off the page as well to animation when they're trying to get that part of it. And I didn't feel that same ooh, from this that I did from reading the comic book. It's just not as... It, it just you still never forget that you're watching this animated thing, and maybe part of it is that it's a foregone conclusion. I already know what's going to happen here. Yeah, you know, be. I'm not as attached to Tara here as the comic book made you. This tries to have those moments where you're like, it shows her humanity and that she has doubts about this here. But I felt like that was just. I mean, you had more time just to tell that stuff in the comic. I don't know. I was very mixed about this one, to be honest. Yeah. I think it's just fine. It's just fine, but I wouldn't recommend it to anybody unless they're just really into the DC universe and want to just catch up on this stuff. So. Yeah, I mean, it's not bad for the yeah. DC stuff. It's not definitely not one of the best, but it's definitely not one of the worst either. And yeah. I, I was actually kind of disappointed with the supplements. Um, not as much stuff as I usually expect, um, including would they keep doing this thing, a sneak peek at of movies that came out like three years ago. It's like, why is yeah. this on here? Um, but they have a sneak peek at the next real one, Batman and Harley Quinn, which I'm still like, really? That's an odd choice, but I'll watch it because, you know, I will. Um, and then episodes that involve the Teen Titans from television, as they usually do. And then there's the the piece I referenced earlier with Wolfman and Perez. who are talking about the original uh like thing, and then there's a yeah. very sh- nine minute thing looking at Deathstroke. I've noticed over time the things, the documentaries that l- go in depth into an element of the comics have gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. When this first started, they were like 30, 35 minutes, right? And now they're like less than 10 minutes. You're like, okay, I kind of liked the having this encyclopedic exploration as an extra on this thing. It makes it, some of these I only have kept because those things are huh. so cool on them, even if the movie itself isn't that good. But, you know, hey, what are you going to do? Anyway, let's move on to the next one, which is going way back. Way back. Way back with the Criterion release of a the very first team-up between Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, who ended up being a, a, you know, a force to be reckoned with in Hollywood back in the day and mm-hmm. off uh, you know, off the, the, the celluloid as well. Yeah. A no, woman there's... of the year. This is actually, I mean, this this is as... It happens every once in a while on Digital Noise where... You know, we, we get a bunch of stuff, you know, from all over. And we get a lot of archival releases. We get cult films. We got a few coming up soon. Uh, older titles. But every once in a while, you get an older title. That is genuinely, legitimately a Hollywood classic. That's what this is. That doesn't say that I don't have my issues with it. But, oh, boy, we got oh. some issues with this movie. Oh, oh boy. The but it is a classic. This film is like... I, I would say the first... <laughs> I don't. I forget exactly how long this movie is, but I would say like the first three quarters of this movie, maybe the first like four fifths of this movie, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, you've the, got Catherine Hepburn, who is like basically playing the best journalist in the world. Like, right? She's world famous. She's incredibly well spoken. She speaks multiple languages. Everybody respects her. But she kind of gets into this with well, the equivalent of an online fight, just in the columns with a one of the better sports reporters out there, yeah. played by Spencer Tracy, uh, bitching to each other uh, about things. Uh, that she basically co- says b- baseball's unimportant, and this leads to a whole right. thing. But they, when they actually meet, it's a total... It's total opposites attract. A little hard to buy, but you're like, okay, fine, uh, meet cute, and they yeah. fall for each other right. hard. And that works because that's what happened in real life. It is because ex- they had never worked together before. They didn't really know each other, but Catherine <laughs> Hepburn, who at this point, and, and this is where the supplements on this Criterion disc are very useful for providing some context for this, you know, because Catherine Hepburn was already a big star. Spencer mm. Tracy was already a big star, but she was starting to wane a little bit. 
there was a sense that audiences had kind of gotten tired of Katherine Hepburn. She was so perfect. And everybody kind of wanted to see her knock down a peg, including the director. And Katherine Hepburn herself seemed to acknowledge this and go, okay, I need to reinvent myself. She goes back to Broadway. She commissions the script for the Philadelphia story. It becomes a huge hit. She's smart enough to retain the rights. Yeah. She gets it made. It's an enormous hit. Now she has a little more clout. She puts together this package deal where she's going to star in another script that she commissioned for herself specifically, which became Woman of the Year. And she demanded and got Spencer Tracy. Yeah. Because she just thought he'd be good for the role. They had no relationship but prior boy, to that. But boy, was there real life sparks, which was a problem since he was married. He was married. He was several years older. He's this sort of hard-drinking, manly man, kind of salt-of-the-earth, short, squat kind of guy. And, of course, she's like, you know, this she's, ice queen. She's the character who she's playing in this film. She's Pretty brilliant. Much. She's deeply respected by intellectuals the world round. You know I mean? She's like a woman out of time. Yeah. And, you know, and, and he's a Neanderthal by comparison. And, and there's some wonderful plays on here. <laughs> there's some wonderful inversions here because, basically... Spencer Tracy plays the female in this relationship, and I don't mean that in any specific gender way, but if you look at some of the ways uh, you have uh, gender-based comedy, what does he get upset about? He's like, oh, I got a new hat, and she didn't notice. Yeah, you know, true. Or, oh, you, we always go and talk about your friends and meet your friends. Yeah. and. You're just at pretending like you're listening to me, but you're really not interested in anything I'm saying. And so, of course, this starts to lead to some friction. And, and there's some wonderful byplay between them because there are times where she is horrible. Yeah. You know, and there's times when he's just a lunkhead. But, but none of that excuses the ending, which subverts no. any trace of feminism this film well, had. Well, the thing is, it, it, it treats feminism as a joke, but it seems for the majority of this movie that what you're really rooting for is these two characters not to change yeah. so much as to find a way to balance yeah. and the, their and, relationship. And the ending feels like it was tacked on at the last And minute. it literally was. Uh, yeah, and It literally was. Catherine Hepburn said um, years later that that was one of the biggest regrets of her career yeah. was agreeing to it, the, it, the it different It tested ending. badly. Yeah. And, and again, and this was from women in the audience, too. Mm-hmm. A lot of people thought that Catherine Hepburn needed to be knocked out of Well, you know what? There are gay people who voted for Trump. There so you go. Just gotta show you, there's always people there's who voted against their guy, best interest. There's always that guy. And, and so uh, George Stevens, the director, uh, who's a great director. I mean, he has an amazing number oh, yeah. of credits. But, you know, he basically, uh, they did shoot another ending. Unfortunately, it's lost. We yeah. have the original script. We have stills from that. Uh, and it it had a lot of the same dialogue, but they rejiggered the whole thing to create. Basically, she comes running back, and again, like I said, it's kind of an inversion. Typically, it would be in most romantic comedies, it would be the man realizing sure. how much he screwed up and runs back and promises to change. And here's where it's galling in that it's brilliant until it's not, because yeah. they come up with this great comic set piece. Of her trying to cook in the kitchen. Yeah. And, you know, it's just one gag after another. And it's so well done. And people forget just what a great gift Catherine Hepburn had for physical comedy. And she controls that whole scene for mo- it's It's very minute, many minutes long. And Spencer Tracy's just sitting there trying not to say anything while she is making the world's worst breakfast. Yeah. And he actually knows how to cook. And he knows how to cook, which yeah. is another thing. We've yeah. seen him cook, you know, and everybody's like, you know, coming and saying, oh, while you're at it, can you make me some eggs, too? 
I mean, that's a, the, the upshot of this. There's so many great scenes in here. They've yeah. got such incredible chemistry that it really is a shame that this film, be by definition of the ending, can't doesn't stand the test of time. It does it not. ruins all of the impetus there. If they anybody ever found that original ending and released it that way, this would become a, a much bigger classic, I think, that, that, yeah. that it deserves I, to I be. I think the reason it's on Criterion, because well, one, you know, again, a great director, great comedy yeah. team up. A uh, great significant pairing of a of a long standing career. Pairing, yeah, not just for the fact that so many great movies like Adam's Rib. Yeah, you know, they did like eight movies. movies but the fact is, they became like secret lovers, yeah. but not so secret for the next thirty years yeah. or however long it was. She literally nursed him on his deathbed. Yeah, you know, it was like, and, and the thing he never is, that's was why resentful about the fact that he was not going to leave his wife. That, and that's why this that. movie could have worked because Catherine Hepburn accomplished in real life what her character in this movie could not. And I you know, you can't help but think there was there would have been a way to make a satisfying ending. But again, it's hard to say to judge too harshly a movie that came out, you know, in the forties. It was many, many years ago. True. Times were different. You gotta look at it. We gotta take it for what it is. Yes, Um, but I still highly recommend it because it is a great movie. Just go in knowing that you're gonna kind of uh, you know roll your eyes in the last 15 minutes of an otherwise amazingly good movie. Uh, lots of bonus features, this being a criterion, including an interview, archival interview with the director, George Stevens, worth calling his time working on this film. A brand new video interview with George Stevens Jr., his son, I guess you could have figured that out for yourself, talking about that creative environment in which his dad worked and how he treated the people that he expected would see his films that was made for Criterion. Uh, there's a brand new video interview with Marilyn Ann Moss, the author of a biography of George Stevens. There is a new video interview with author and journalist Claudia Roth Pierpoint, who discusses the life and career of Catherine Hepburn, which to me is the most interesting thing. It, it really was. I it's, think she's. It's probably Catherine the one that provided the most context for this feature. And then another archival documentary about the life and career of uh, George Stevens. It's actually feature length that's on here. Yeah. It's, uh, and then in our feature length documentary about Spencer Tracy and yeah. his legacy. Um, so lots of good stuff in here. This is definitely, if you are a fan of these two actors mm. or either one of them, because of the bonus features alone, even discounting the movie, because of the bonus features alone, this is an essential part of a collection. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to another uh, power teaming, I guess you could <laughs> another say. Another female-centric, uh, uh, not necessarily politically correct story. No, this is Catfight, uh, written and directed by the very controversial Omer Turkle. Now, you like just recently he's been getting kicked off of podcasts and stuff for being just outrageous and being an asshole. Apparently, he's not the most pleasant guy in the world. I really enjoyed the the vampire horror comedy he put out in 2014, Summer of Blood, which kind of felt like if uh, Dan Harmon got bit by a vampire and didn't have any friends, what would happen? You know, very funny. Really recommend it. But this is also, like, one of those films, I, you just can't quite put your finger on what it is that's making this work, but I did think it was working. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what makes it work is, uh, well, we should go back a little bit. Uh, what makes it work is the the character dynamic between Sandra Owen and Haish. Who are the two main characters. Uh, who are the two main characters of this cat fight. They play two people who used to know each other in college. They're not exactly friends. They hated each other in college. They disliked each other. They started off as friends, grew to dislike each other, grew apart. And then many years later, bump into each other. They find themselves in completely different life situations. Yeah, Sandra and O's married a rich guy. She's, she's a trophy wife. She's become a trophy wife. She's very used to and ex- happy about it. Whereas Anne Heche, 
has gone full blown. Like I'm gay. I live with my lover, Alicia Silverstone. We're trying to, to, to like adopt a, a child, baby, yeah. have a baby. Um, and we're very like, she's a painter and she's very like, fuck the establishment and fuck everybody. Right. They couldn't be more right. opposite, but they, they have a, a fateful encounter that breaks out into a fight. A lot of old a animosity. And, and this is the other thing that makes it work because contrary to the word, a uh, cat fight may conjure up images of women slapping each other and pulling hair. Now, this is a the, brutal these are <laughs> These are like, you know... I don't mean like a kung This is like battle. daredevil level, like street brawl I mean, kind of stuff. When two people want each other to die. Great fully worked. And from two women you would not expect to ever see in that kind of situation. Now, and they sell the hell out of to it. To talk about what like really does make this interesting, I, I do have to go into what some people might consider to be slight spoilers. It's really the beginning of the second act. But I, I really want to bring it to that point. Well, which we is, need to talk about uh, the narrative structure. What, well, I mean, that is the narrative structure. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I mean that's I'm trying to I'm dance around without yeah. saying what well, happens. I, mean, I feel like I can start with what, the first stage of this. Because sure. it goes through multiple stages. It was basically after the fight, Sandra wakes up and years have passed. She's yeah. in a hospital. She has lost all her money. Her husband has died. Her son has died. She has nothing. This is all in the, also during the lead up to an enormous war that her husband was standing to profit immensely from. Yeah. And meanwhile, Anne Heche's character, because of that same war, has become enormously successful absolutely. as a painter. Because Suddenly her, her political art is huge. And, and, you know, which is to say part of this film's, like, subtext is to discuss, like, so how, in what situation is it okay to be a war profiteer? These are, right. both of these people are profiteering off war, a point... I don't entirely agree with. That's like saying anybody that puts out any, like if Michael Moore should be considered a war profiteer. I'm like, yeah, I don't agree with that. Point. That that is that is Turkle's biggest stretch. Yeah, and, and I think it's probably the most interesting argument and an argument worth having. But I think that's the one where some audience members might feel like they've you know are going to check out. I I, I because don't, basically you know it remains Colbert and John Stewart are. By his definition, yeah. profiteering from it, the war. It, it feels like someone looking for an argument where there shouldn't be one. Yeah. And, and thankfully, it remains largely a subtext. You can't miss it, but it's not the bigger yeah. thrust of the movie. Ultimately, both these people, they're just awful, awful human beings. They, and, and that's the both thing. They them. aren't. You do sense a moment where, you know, one character might be able to redeem herself. But again, the, the, these characters, and, and we talked about... And again, not going into spoiler terries, but this basically has a kind of um, – this is one of the moments where I realized that he's kind of working almost at an allegorical level because at some point realism goes out the window. Sure. It, the exact same set of circumstances happened to the other character, and she has the exact same experience, you know, waking up many years later – after the result of a fight, and now she has suddenly lost everything. So now these two women have both mutually destroyed one another's lives, and there's really little left for them to do. Either they either are going to grow up and you know just learn to accept the world as it is, or they are going to murder one and another. A, this film is there's a like I'll, I would definitely describe it as ugly. Its, it's point ugly, of view, but. There's no denying it's also funny. It's, it's like funny. really, really bleak black yeah, humor. Oh, it's super black. I definitely, there's a lot of really clever stuff that happens along the way. The very narrative structure is really clever. And yeah. the, the, you're like, literally, the act dividing points are when the three fights these women yeah. have with each other. They're, all three are just nasty. And, and, and each fight doesn't feel gratuitous. Each one is different. Each one is an escalation of what happened previously. Each one is staged in a very different, very brutal way. And yet each one 
is what triggers the next, you know, phase of the story. Uh, and, and this and, is definitely and, worth checking out, but I, it is uncomfortable. It's not going to be for everyone. It, it, for it's sure. It's not for everybody. There's a lot of people who are going to hate it, this movie. It was almost my pick of the week. Okay. It, it, it's probably my number two. Uh, there's commentary with the writer-director, uh, Owner Turkle. There's a commentary with Sandra Owen and Hayes, who I heard actually did end up hating each other. Uh, you so know, I wouldn't be they, surprised. Yeah. But. Um, and then there's a look at the fight choreography. Which was actually, that was yeah. a really good It was actually pretty well done. Uh, and then the deleted scenes. Because those two women really go head to head and they really sell it yes there are stunt women involved as well but they do a lot of it and i also have to just throw out a word for alicia silverstone yeah that's she's, a nice she's understated in performance in it yeah. you know i don't see her in a lot like, of stuff yeah, she's still acting yeah that's kind of my and i'm like she's really good and she doesn't look like she's hardly aged a day and that's she's true. great in this All speaking right. of things something that has aged more than a day i'm not sure this looked any better when it came out we are talking about psycho cop 2 <sighs> now being titled with its vinegar syndrome release um psycho cop returns now this is hardly essential to have watched psycho cop first <laughs> yeah yeah i had so many questions going into this i mean it's a horror comedy i put both those words in quotation marks yeah it's not it, very funny and it's not very scary i mean it was definitely a response to the much superior maniac cops sure which is so much like more clever than this is this is just so low budget and silly there's a point that it's, I'm kind of like, okay, I'm kind of into this because of just how bottom of the b barrel dumb it, it's it is. It's borderline softcore. I, oh, and it features 1992 Playmate of the Month, Julie Strain. And I only know that because that is exactly how she is billed yeah, in this in movie. The, in the opening in the credits, credits. I'm like, I have never seen that I was before. like, <laughs> wow, you, this is a true exploitation movie. Like, you gee, knew what you were exploiting. I wonder if she's going to take her shirt off at some point. And, and you know what? She's not even the one who gets the most naked. Yeah, but she also is never in a scene with her shirt is on. So, yeah, to be and fair. you know... that. Oh, do we even anyway, want to try to go yeah, into this the plot? The plot is basically, um, we meet the, the, the bad guy from the first film, Officer Joe Vickers, who is a serial killer who has got his power from Satan. Apparently, he does have some degree yeah. of supernatural But he also has, feels very strongly morally superior about yes, people, he does. Which and is it, weird, because my understanding is Satanists were a little more laissez-faire about sex I, and You would drugs. think, right? Yeah, it's weird that he's uh, taken on the morals of Jason Voorhees, but yeah. there you go. Um, and, uh, like, in, in the first one we saw, he was an escaped serial killer who killed a cop and then took over the cop's outfit and his car and everything. I mean, when we meet him, his car is filled with dismembered dead bodies. Which and nobody six, on the street six, notices. Yeah, I know. Like, he doesn't have, like, uh, tinted windows. What the fuck? His license plate is upside down. There is every reason why this cop would be pulled over by another cop. Uh, but he's, he overhears Brian and Larry, some uh, white-collar workers who are talking about a bachelor party they're planning to have have in their workplace for their friend Gary. And he's like, what? Uh, what? sex with a woman and drugs and drinking i'm gonna follow these guys and i'm gonna kill them all which is what basically happens with the rest of the movie as they for some reason throw the bachelor party in the office where they work imagine die hard in a much smaller building only with like you know the the whole sort of uh sleepaway camp template placed over it and with no con no and, but with yuppies instead of co-eds and not a like an inch of the quality and none of the quality None of the quality. How yeah, they just, managed to get into it. So I don't know, ridiculous. But. Some of the gore is okay. We yeah. were like, oh, that was a clever moment. Um, but uh, I don't know. This is, I guess, the best way. Just for people who, from the description are like, oh, that sounds like it's my kind of thing. You know. But you know yeah, who you are. You know who you are. And the thing is, every time, every time, without fail, whenever we get some somewhat rediscovered, barely cult film, you know, 
it's always by Vinegar Syndrome. Vinegar Syndrome keeps putting out movies that I never really wanted to see and still don't. But God bless them. They put so much love and care into packaging these movies that are worthless. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, but just because your movie got released on VHS and somehow survived on a shelf summer mm-hmm. for 20 years, that doesn't guarantee you, you know, cult classic status. I mean, there are people who, th- that they just eat up this stuff. And that's Absolutely. why companies like Vinegar Syndrome and are here to put this stuff out and do a loving Absolutely. release of where the, you know, they fix There are great movies that don't get this kind of exactly. treatment. Uh, and this has a commentary with the director who probably they had to pull him out of his job at like a fast food restaurant. No, no, no. Adam Rift has actually gone oh, did on, he direct, go on to you know, do big things? The, he, he was directing under a pseudonym. He actually did, like, uh, Detroit Rock City. And he has a mainstream oh, yeah, career. Yeah, Mouse Hunt. Yeah, you know, The Chase. Uh, but at some point during this same period, he wanted to go off and do some little, you know, quickie, just, you know, learn how to make a movie, do it in a few days. And he would direct it under this different name. So he's actually done a fair oh, number a lot, of yeah. mainstream things. But, you know, semi-mainstream. Though. Semi-mainstream. Never big hits, but, you know, mainstream fare that just, you know, kind of B-movies. And they got a 42-minute making-up documentary they made for this. Yeah. A nine-minute conversation with the FX artist. I mean, it's a pretty loving trip. Vinegar Syndrome does a good job uh, putting these together. The, One of that, that triad of companies right now that do these, like, loving tributes to movies almost nobody cares about. Yeah. Like Arrow, Arrow Vinegar. Video and and uh, um, uh, Shout Factory. And Shout Factory. That, that do but, this. And I'm grateful because sometimes those movies they do it with are the movies that yeah. I love. But Vinegar Syndrome tends to seem to have just gravitated towards the bottom of the barrel. Well, they like the, the schlocky But they definitely ex- love the schlocky. Hard, and, and that's fine. You know, the, the thing about this is this whole movie, and I think all the people working on it would acknowledge that it is extremely derivative. It's probably shot in about a week. You know, obviously they had seen Nightmare on Elm Street and they said, you know what's scary? You know what's really great? If we had a monster who just talks all the fucking time. <laughs> I mean, Psycho Cop is a real chatty Cathy. He problem. never shuts up. And just puns like the like the he, post he, the, the like I, a dream warrior. He's like your crazy. He's like a dad he's like a dad jokester. The thing I kept thinking how much funnier this would be if Arnold Schwarzenegger dubbed the whole thing. Because really, it's a bunch of Arnold jokes like it, we're this close to him. I mean, he, he doesn't use the exact words, but he might as well just stick you with a pole and go stick it out. You know, it's those kind of jokes. Yeah. Constantly. They should have a movie where Nick Offerman just plays like a dad who turns into a killer and call it dad body. Yeah. <laughs> and, and all he does is just make dad jokes. Yeah, exactly. And this is why it doesn't work. You, you've got a lot of skin, but there's no real sex. You've got a fair amount of gore, but none of it really is realistic yeah. or terribly gross. You've got a guy who's supposed to be scary, but talks so damn much, he's never scary. And you've got a bunch of humor, which isn't funny. So it doesn't hit any of its marks. So not your pick of the week is what you're saying. Well, you know, I see number three. No, no, no. no, uh, no, This was like, this. actually, this was not the least impressive thing. There is some fun to be had in Psycho Cop Returns or whatever they're calling it, but... Like we said, you know who you are. If this sounds like your idea of a good night, then pick up Psycho Cop, pick up a few beers, and it's kick back. A lot of, there's a lot of people who love this shit. I, I would have enjoyed it more if I was watching it with a bunch of drunk people. I mean, if I was, if Brian Salisbury was still on the show, it would be me versus him, because he would probably be defending it, and I'd be like, you are a crazy person. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't crazy about it, but I'm not saying it's uh, you're wrong for loving it. Yeah. 
Uh, but speaking but, of something you're right for love. Yeah, this is actually my pick of the week, although I'm going to guess that your pick of the week is the last film on our list this week, if I'm not mistaken. No. No? Oh, so is this your pick of the week? This is, in fact, my pick oh, of the week. Oh, good. But we're talking about the girl with all the gifts. I got to see this at Fantastic Fest, and it just blew me away. I really like this, partially because I just don't expect to watch a zombie film nowadays that is this good? Yeah, I mean, does something this new with it? We watch a fair amount of zombie films in the course of this show, and I've reached the point where I'm like, oh god, yeah, another another one. Film. What else? Yes, people are horrible. Yes, the apocalypse will happen, and people will just become their worst selves, and that happens here too. Uh, but you know, it adds some new twist to it. And plus, if you ever just wanted to see Glenn Close shank a guy in the neck. <laughs> Hey, this is the movie for you. This is another movie that is saved by a great cast. And I think a really great script. And a great script. A good premise. I mean, whereas much, of course, because the basis of it's a zombie apocalypse, you are going to see some familiar stuff. But the the way that this focuses on this main character changes everything. Absolutely. And and the relevance of it. The idea is this is post-apocalyptic. In the sense that the apocalypse is almost post-apocalyptic. The zombie apocalypse is still happening. There's not a lot of human survivors yeah. left. We're in one of the last compounds of uh, the military where they've holed up against the zombies. They're constantly battering against their walls outside, uh, affected by some sort of fungal disease that's yeah. making this. And the one thing the military has d- determined is that for some reason, the second generation of children who are born, they're born as zombies but they have their intelligence. Right. They're completely intelligent and they're not zombieish at all. It's until only when they, they get come in super a, close to right. a human. They yeah. come into contact with like if they smell pheromones, they smell sweat, they smell they start know, to human bodily it. fluids, they suddenly go into rage mode. But as we see with the girl with the gifts, uh all the gifts uh played by uh, uh Senia, a newcomer, Nana. She is fantastic yeah, in this. Yeah, who's like definitely like we meet her, I mean like when we meet all these kids, they're being taught by uh, um, Gemma Arterton, who's like definitely has a lot of sympathy because these are kids. They're just yeah, she kids is a teacher. who have this unfortunate disease and they're all like Anthony Hopkins and Silence of the Lambs yeah. trussed up all the time. They so have they to be wheelchaired everywhere. They have to be secured. You have to wear some kind of skin you know, the cream. Military, the military, the main people we see for it, Patty Considine, is kind of like, why are we even bothering? These right. things are monsters. And then Glenn Close, who is a doctor, military doctor, is kind of like, well, because I want to see what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, because um, she's working on the vaccine and they believe yeah that these children might be the may have may hold the answer to the what's problem what's causing this but watching this young girl who is doing her best she's just super polite to everyone she's obviously very smart i mean she's in the real in the sense of you know kids today you would say that little girl's gifted yeah right i mean she literally is she literally has a gift though in that she possesses within her body her blood whatever it may be possibly the cure, the vaccine to this. And what we see throughout is uh, at some point, what's interesting about this is that even though it is this sort of global apocalypse and we see some, you know, wide shots of cities and ruin, it's really just four or five people just wandering through this urban wasteland, trying to find, you know, shelter, trying to get to another base. And what they have to do is they have to rely on this little girl who they are all somewhat suspicious of, but she is also the one person who can get them safely through this zone because the zombies won't attack who, who her. Who wants to, but has that weakness. And she wants to. She can't get too close to these yeah. guys or she will zombie out. Yeah. So, I mean, again, you have the, the sympathetic teacher who's sort of the bleeding heart who could cause this whole thing to collapse if she, you know, 
is too nice to this girl. You have Glenn Close, who's sort of this icy, you know, doctor who uh, beneath the surface, you know, may seem outwardly polite, but she's really, you know, she's really motivated to just find this cure and she doesn't care who gets in the way. And Patty Considine, the sort of gruff sergeant who kind of forms a grudging respect with this young girl when he sees what she can do. And I mean, just by listening to us, you can probably tell these people are all archetypes for types of people, for groups of people who are around the day. And this movie does have things to say about that, but it remains so much like under the surface the whole time, yeah. like it's there. And Once you have again, great actors you don't even who make those to, characters you don't feel even real. Have to think about that level of it if you hate watching movies that feel like they have to have something to say. Yeah. You can just watch this as a sheer fun, Absolutely. awesome kind of thinking action horror and just have a great time with and, it. And and you know, it sticks an ending that's both tough and hopeful. Oh, total. That but totally subverts your expectations. Uh, like I said, it feels like a sort of modest budgeted picture, but they managed to create a lot of scope, a lot of tension, a lot of detail in the production design. Yeah. And you have four or five just great actors who would be actors you wouldn't necessarily expect to see in a zombie film. Or even working together. Yeah. But <laughs> here they are together and they all play off each other fantastically. A smart script. Very well directed yep. and makes the, a lot of use out of their limited resources. I don't want to talk too much more about it because yeah, I'll give it away. There's, there's this a lot is a of great stuff, movie. There's a lot of stuff going on in this movie. There's a lot of awesome moments. Highly recommended. Really, this is on my don't miss it yeah. list. Um, and there's one bonus feature, which is a, about a 21-minute like EPK. I, th- I feel like it's one of these films eventually is going to be enough people see it. People like this is a classic and it'll get a re-release with a lot more. I, I think, you know, 10, it, 15 but. years from now, maybe. Uh, who knows? Maybe sooner. All right, let's move on to another film that has been getting very, like, either love it or hate it reactions. And Ah. that is Detour, uh, the latest film written and directed by Christopher Smith, who has definitely done some interesting things with his career, including the much-beloved Triangle from 2009, which I've still not gotten around to seeing, but I've always heard is great. And then the horror comedy Severance, which I totally adore and the really good cool period piece like horror film action horror film black death mm. from 2010 with sean bean um so one of those like okay this guy's done some really cool stuff and this movie has a kind of a interesting sounding twist that it's film noir starring the great up-and-coming young actor ty sheridan who who found his like a uh, public acceptance after appearing in the wonderful film mud mm-hmm. who is a guy who's hates his stepfather because he caused the car accident that put his mother in a coma. He blames her. And one night drinking in a bar, he meets up with his professional criminal, Johnny Ray, played by Emery Cohen, and his his uh, his mall, I suppose you could yeah. say. Uh, his hooker mall, uh, played by Belle Powley, who we just saw in a, a really, really wonderful, like, transgressive coming of age movie from last year called a, or the year four called the diary of a teenage yeah. girl. This him is a good cast, him. but um, he agrees to help him kill his stepfather yeah. for $20,000, which he'll do yeah. by driving out to Vegas where they know where his stepfather yeah. is and murdering him there. Now what's like odd about this film is that, that I, th- I get they were trying to do something different, but for me it fell completely flat is yeah. the idea of constantly doing this, what if he had made a different decision filmmaking? Yeah. Like, where they'll go off and go, but what if he had done this instead? And shows you like a minute or two. And of, then like, you what see if that how that all thing. actually ties in together at the end. This is a script that, this is a movie that thinks it's more clever than it is. Mm-hmm. I give it a lot of credit for trying to do something 
a little bit different. Uh, but we kind of know where this is going. You have, you know, the callow, you know, college student who's, you know, pissed at his dad, goes out drinking, wakes up the next day realizing, oh, shit, I drunkenly promised a guy I'd pay him money if he killed my stepdad, and now he's at the door, and guess what? He's not taking no for an answer. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, as we find out, that character has his own reasons for being desperate to get that money and why he's tagging along with this uh Sort of hooker with a heart of gold, but not really. The The problem I had with this is, one, like I said, it felt like it was trying to be more clever than it really is with this sort of nonlinear approach where you think you're seeing multiple possible storylines, but then you realize that at some point they've done a bit of a trick to fool you into thinking one thing when Which it's really another. extremely confusing. You know, well, I wasn't confused. At some point I figured it out. What bugged me was that it was trying so hard to be clever. Uh, you know, it's also the kind of movie where, you know, like, remember after, like, Pulp Fiction came out, there was, like, a whole spate of, like, Tarantino clone sure. type of films. This film kind of reminded me of that. I think if this movie had come out 20 years ago, we would be thinking in it. We would be thinking of it as one of the better uh, films of that ilk. But coming 20 years later... It feels too little too late. It's no run, Lola, run. Yeah, and the the thing about it is that it also, like so many of those films, tries to do that Tarantino trick of, you know, bringing in pop culture references. But unlike Tarantino, who weaves that into his story, it's just there as set dressing. You know, it's like it's detour. It's kind of to make you remind you of that old Edward G. Ulmer uh, sleazy uh, film noir detour, which the characters at one point are literally watching in a hotel room. Yeah. The main character's name is Harper. And as we see prominently featured in the background of his uh, bedroom is a photo is a poster of the Paul Newman movie I mean, Harper. That stuff, you know, didn't it's really all that stuff. That, that stuff doesn't bother me. No, what, but what, to me, it feels like it's a movie that's made by a guy who's seen a bunch of movies. And try to make one up them, and I'm like, dude, you don't need to keep nudging me in the ribs as it's go. Remember that movie? Wasn't that great? It's like, yeah, I saw that fucking movie. Why don't you make a good one? I think if anything, that is only may only be distracting to you because of the fact that the central conceit of this film just flat out doesn't work, and you're already irritated to begin with. That, that might be. I mean, had that worked better, I might have been more. But again, I thought that's why I took it back to the pull fish. It's like, oh, so all you think all you need to do is to tell a good, effective neo noir is to just. Throw in a bunch of pop culture references, throw in this sort of twisty, you know, nonlinear structure, and you've made a masterpiece. And it takes more than that. I, it's I give full points to director writer Christopher Smith for being wildly ambitious, but I sure. wonder if the fault for this doesn't fall, fall firmly on the shoulders of the editor to some extent. Maybe because so. This thing is so awkwardly constructed; it's really a mess. Uh, By the end of it. I was like, okay, I get what happened, but I also am not entirely clear how we got here. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's all over the place. And there's, there's a, a lot point. of bait and you're, switches. You're trying so hard to just follow the fucking story through all the, wait, but did that happen or didn't it happen? That it's hard to even care about what's yeah. happening. I, I never found it hard to follow. I just found it hard to care. Because once I saw what they were doing with it, I just wasn't impressed with it. Uh, there's I mean, bonus features is a, a, a talk to the cast and crew for eight minutes is a, uh, a, a interview with Christopher Smith and Ty Sheridan for 11 minutes. There's six and a half minutes of deleted scenes. It's not like there were people who were real big defenders of this film. And I, to some extent, I get it. There's a lot 
lot of really good young actors in this sure. thing. Uh, Christopher Smith is definitely one of those guys who's done some really interesting work. And like I said, there's nothing if this is nothing if not ambitious. It just doesn't work. No. All right. Let's move on to one that I actually did really enjoy. This little Korean disaster mm-hmm. bottle film called Tunnel. Or The Tunnel, depending yeah. on where you got it. When I think my copy just said Tunnel. Uh, directed by Kim Seong-hun, uh, starring Ha Jung-woo in the lead role, who is a major force in Korean yeah. film right now. And the idea is he's a car salesman, nice enough guy. He's driving through a big tunnel, and the tunnel fucking collapses yeah. on him and his car, and he's trapped. Something I always start fucking having, like, yeah, like, it, like yeah. fear shakes on every time I go through one of those tunnels. Yeah, if you have issues, I don't know what the name of, what the phobia is for fear of driving through tunnels, but if you have that, you should not watch this movie. No, or if you have problems with claustrophobia. Yeah. But for everybody uh, else, this is great. And this follows the team that's outside that's trying to figure out how the fuck to help this guy. I mean, literally a mountain fell on him. Yeah. And he's like, well, he has like two bottles alive. of water and a cake. Right. Uh, you know, and then the, the one part I was like, okay, wouldn't he run out of air at some point? But that movie, the movie chooses to just go, don't worry about that. Yeah. And I'm going to deal with that. We'll just assume that there's an open vent somewhere that. Well, you know, he, it's a big plot point that a fan falls on him. Right. So, so it's presumably it was near that. an air shaft of some uh, kind. I, and as well, wow, how are you getting a signal? Because, dude, every time I go through one of those tunnels, yeah. my phone dies. But, but I mean, it really becomes a story about how do you ration your resources? How much battery power do you have? And what happens when you find out there's someone else in there with yeah. you who, who might need the help more than you do and you have to make decisions yeah. based on that? I thought this was had great performances. I thought it was really well handled by the director. Absolutely. And it offered a lot of pretty well-defined characters having to make tough choices. Good social commentary as well. Uh, it, it kind of vaguely reminded me. It's where I thought it was going was sort of like, you know, a riff on that old Billy Wilder film, Ace in the Hole, you know, which is about the reporter who is sort of ginning up this story about a guy who's trapped in a cave-in and prolonging it for his career. Because very early on, we meet all these reporters, and it's clear that, you know, they're the first on the scene. They're trying to get to this guy. They're trying to talk to him. And, and then it, it that phases out. It's still a background element. I thought that's where they were going originally. And there's a great moment where you see all of these drones fly in. And you realize there's the police drone, but it's all the reporters have drones, right. too. Yeah, the police drone starts to go in. You know, and you and see of course, they're all crashing into each other. following. Because uh, they're merciless in the just se- getting the story. Well, the central question of this movie, which apparently they included in the as text in the trailers for this, is how much is a human life worth? Absolutely. Which the movie it keeps because addressing on different levels over and over. Because there's another nearby construction project that has to blow up stuff. And, you know, they're There's like, a hey, lot of political you stuff. know, like, is it, got he may minister. already be dead. You know, you've got people who are spending every resource. You have people who are getting hurt on site trying to save this guy. And it goes on for many, many weeks. And, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing to see how the guy survives. But, yeah, it comes to a question like, look, we've lost contact. We have to assume he's dead. We've spent a lot of money. We've got all these other projects. Yeah. You know, all these people have other and jobs it, and to do. And it really does build to an interesting climax with that sort of thing. Yeah. Like, if there's no way he can figure out how to get in touch with people, they, he, they is, going, he is gonna die. Yeah. Like, and, and immediately. And, and it makes this whole thing actually vaguely kind of edge of your seat-ish for uh, a movie with its mainly one guy in one spot. Trapped in a crushed it's car. extremely tense film yeah. that I thought like, I mean, it wouldn't have worked without the, all these great actors in it. And Absolutely. A wonderful job. Well, you know, even with them, you know, me obviously not speaking Korean, um, even with the, 
like get that coming through yeah. completely what a good performance these characters are giving. Yeah. I really do recommend this one. I believe it might even already be on streaming, but yeah, yeah. the tunnel, check it I, out. In another in another batch, this might have been my pick of the week. Yeah. It could have it, it's, it's really close. up there. Uh, another one that everybody, I know this is the film that everyone's like, what? This isn't your pick of the week? I famously talked smack about the Red Turtle, Turtle when I saw it at Fantastic Fest because I get it. I love, I love a lot of Studio uh, Ghibli films. I really do. And I also like that, that sort of a, the, the French, um, uh, with Tintin style. Yeah. And this is a, a mashup, literally, between these two things as it's a, Japanese uh, writer directors and French writer directors making a movie together, yeah. but unfortunately, it's boring as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I was like so bored out of my mind. It, watching it the will Red tax Turtle. people's patience. I, I again, I don't want to spoil it, but I could literally tell you the plot of this movie in about three sentences. There's that little story. This is not a movie about plot. There is a plot, but it's very basic. Uh, you have a man who gets washed up onto an island. He has to figure out a way to survive on that island. He tries to escape. Uh, he builds multiple rafts. Each time he's thwarted by this giant red turtle. Uh, and somewhere during the course of the story, he meets a woman. He starts a family. They figure out how a way to survive on the island. They grow old together. It's sort of a circle of life kind of situation yeah. where you basically have, you know, a character's journey. You know, you have issues about just, you know, being at one with nature of issues of growing old, of mortality. And really, it's a film about nature. And while I could, as I said, synopsize this thing in just a few sentences, no movie's really what it's about. It's how you go about it, of course. as Roger it's Ebert famously said. And I think it works on that level. It is 80 minutes long. It's I think, thank, I think there's probably, short. you know, so it allows... A lot of beautiful animation. It's good. a lot of traditional hand-drawn hand animation. Very small crew. It's it's like you're and, watching French animated characters yeah. in a Japanese animated world. Yeah, is it, it it's like. basically a fairy tale. This would be a yeah, very delightful little book. It almost feels more like a myth. But it, it's a myth. But it's for adults. It doesn't feel like it's for children. Uh, I think children, if if you think if you see cartoons and you think oh, my kid's going to like, there's nothing here that's going to scare or bother. No, kid. but I think it's but their patience, the their patience will this. be challenged. This is a cartoon for adults. This definitely. is definitely and for this adults. is for people who get that. I mean, like, okay, I'm the guy who goes, oh, I love my na neighbor Totoro. I've watched it so many yeah. times. The zen of that movie. I mean, sure. almost nothing happens in that film, yeah. but it just has this sense of zen that really connected with yeah, me. This reminds this, me this, like this is the a little sense prince. Of, this is know? the sense of zen film that that's what it has to yeah. offer that didn't connect yeah. with me. And I was like, okay, so I was just bored. But I know plenty of people who walked out of this fucking thing crying. They love. I mean, it so I much. did not have that. I did not have that reaction to it. You know, uh, I just admired it for what it was, and that is a, f a genre of an animation that rarely gets released, that does not get a lot of traction. It's kind of amazing to me that this got made. Hmm. You know, I think without Agreed. Studio Ghibli's name attached, they probably... Because it's a French-Belgian production with Studio Ghibli just basically providing a shingle uh, for these guys to advertise the film. Well, no, they, they, had, they had a little bit of creative input, but it was all done in France. And, uh, you know, if you listen to the commentary, the director, uh, Dudek, I believe his name. Yeah, Michael, Michael Dudek DeWitt. Uh, you know, he talks about talking to some of the head guys over through a translator 
uh, to the head guys over at uh, Ghibli, not Miyazaki, but the other guys yeah. who work with him. And he was just, they had great notes. They, you know, they, but they, more than anything, they encouraged him to do what he was doing. And they gave him the freedom. Whereas I think anywhere else, they would have said, dude. Oh, never would have happened, yeah. You know. Some explosions. Something needs to happen. Does the turtle know kung fu? Yeah, you know. Can they know can kung we, fu? Can we show? And the thing is, it's done without dialogue. Somewhere they yeah. would have said, can't we just get like Brad Pitt you know, to come in no, and voice somebody this? Somebody says, like, hey, no. at one point. Yeah, hey is nonverbal vocalizations is yeah. literally all you get. Hey is the closest thing to a word. Visually, this is beautiful. I get why some people really responded to it. I feel like it would have been better like a picture book. It kind of made me think of stories like The Little Prince where, you know, you have a, it's a kind of precious little story about a guy. He's on a little planet. He's all by himself yeah. and how he gets along. And you think, this is a cute little storybook. Why would anybody ever stretch it out to 80 minutes long? Right. Because I think this could have been, you know, a good... This was also nominated for an Oscar. This feels like it would have been a great short. Uh, I think a 20-minute short, short. it would have been great without... But even the director in the commentary says, you know, I cut a lot. He says, I was contractually obligated to make it 80 minutes. And and it's stronger because I kept kept it shorter. Would have been even stronger at 20 minutes. But, you know, so (laughs) it it really depends on your patience level. I mean, all that being said, because of the people I know who I often agree with, like a lot of friends of mine who are animators who love this thing, I am totally going to get super high in like a year and try and watch this again. I I wouldn't watch it high. (laughs) To To me, that's the thing. It's like... This is there's certain movies that obviously are like oh wow it's got to be high man no no I don't this, mean like this that. is I think you can grasp I, this I, in any matter, state it's of mind of that sometimes the um, getting the emotional connection to something it it helps to try that type of altered state of mind yeah. that you may not get it before I mean I rarely. Like, I'm like, oh, that film's so much more psychedelic when you're high. It's more like, no, I get a resonance from something I wouldn't otherwise. Maybe so. I'm trying a film that I, way. I was watching it with two minds going, I'm not terribly moved by this, but I understand why this Wait, is moving. Wait, are you moving. Steve Martin? Yeah, I am. A man with two brains? I am. Sorry. I'm a man, I'm a man of two. And everyone brains. who's listening to this is like that movie came out 15 years before we were born. So That's we don't right. Know what you're talking about? Um, you this jerks. also comes with a uh, hour long <laughs> the birth of the red turtle documentary, looking at how this all came to be. 17 minutes on the secrets of the red turtle, the director talking about how they created all this stuff uh, artistically, and then at AFI Fest a Q and A for 20 minutes with the director. Um, I mean, it's a solid package put together for a film that clearly uh, means a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. I just wasn't one of those people. Totally understand. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Digital Noise. Yeah. I would like to thank Marco, who has a billion more important things to do in his life than That's sit around not talk true. I have a million right things. Now. Not uh, billion. Not a, okay, so I, I exactly. Million. Come bit. on. But I'm grateful for you coming out and doing this with me. Uh, I will be <laughs> back in about another week and a half. Or maybe even less, you don't know, with uh, with Joe. Like I said, we're trying to do, we're easing towards shorter shows with less titles, but coming out more often yeah. is the goal. So we'll see. More killer, less filler. Exactly. But thank you so much. Please become a subscriber. Like I said, it makes a big difference. You get to see the brand new Captain's Log. Go ahead. <laughs> Captain's Log segments uh, and uh, brand new commentary coming out very shortly as well uh, for another Power Rangers film featuring Matt Frank and the We Are Air guys. And uh, thanks a lot for listening. All right. You have a good night. <laughs>